Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, uh, in here and online, uh, my name's John Culp. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and I'm filling in today for Pastor Mark, who is uh, taking a well-deserved little break. Mark, I know you're watching online. Pray for me, and I hope that you're getting all your honeydews done and have a great time. Well, you know, today... Uh, what my text is that I'm assigned is uh, uh, all of Acts 8 and verses 1 through 31 of, of Acts 9. That's a pretty good chunk to cover. Most any of those little sections of it could make a whole sermon. But it contains a story uh, that is one of my very favorites in the whole Bible about Saul's uh, conversion and transformation when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We'll get to that. So anyway, uh, my title for this is Dispersion, Conversion, and Transformation, or the Life-Changing Gospel. And Mark always opens up with some sort of a little story, vignette, joke, whatever, that kind of relates to the topic he's doing. And I looked and looked for some kind of illustration to put to this, and none of them really quite suited me, and I realized, hey, there's nothing better than my own experience. So I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to try to keep it. I grew up in the church as a kid, and, uh, you know, I was one of those folks having fun in VBS, and I learned all the stories in, in uh, Sunday school and sang all the songs, and I uh, loved it when my mama uh, read Psalms and Proverbs to me, and uh, I prayed and talked to Jesus and stuff. I was, I was a good little church kid. And as I got to be an adolescent, unfortunately, I accepted a lot of the influences around that teach that uh, God and religion, it's all unscientific and God is a myth and uh, religion is irrational and silly and all that. And I became an atheist. And you know what it says in uh, Psalm 14 about the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, that was me. And uh, so anyway... I'll, I'll skip by some of this, but uh, when I went off to medical school in Alabama, I was by myself, and you know, there were a lot of times that I realized that uh, my life was kind of hollow and empty and without purpose, and I'd have periods when I was really lonely and really depressed, and you know what, I knew what I was missing, but I really couldn't quite convince myself to, to turn back to God, and uh uh, I would try reading the Bible. I'd get bogged down in Leviticus and, uh, you know, kind of put it down and forgot about it. Uh, I tried going off to uh, uh, meet with some uh, uh, Bible study groups and stuff. But I never quite got myself turned around. And uh, uh, people would try to witness to me. And, you know, if they were nice and friendly about it, I appreciated them doing it. didn't convince me, but I do appreciate them. And some wanted to kind of argue with me, and I knew enough to, I'm not proud of this, I could twist back scriptures out of context and, and confuse them, you know. But anyway, uh, life went on. I ended up uh, marrying Sweet Jane, who's, who's home watching this, and uh, she grew up in the Christian church, and she really wanted to worship God, and she uh, went to church and I'd go with her sometimes just to support her uh, 
And I felt terribly hypocritical sitting in the church and uh, not believing. I hate to be hypocritical. And uh, anyway, I saw in my practice a lot of people who were facing the real storms of life that come to everybody sooner or later. Things like uh, receiving a terminal diagnosis or losing a loved one, that sort of thing. There was a huge difference in how people dealt with that depending on whether they had deep faith or had no faith. And you know what? I wanted what those people with faith had. Well, one day I was rounding and I was up in the intensive care unit and the doors opened and here came the EMTs in a hurry with a uh, gurney uh, with fell on it that uh, they were coating, they were bag ventilating him. And I recognized this man. I had treated him not long before for a heart attack, and now he'd had another one at home. And as the EMTs told me, uh, he had uh, uh, he had fallen, and uh, his wife had just run around in a panic, screaming for a long time before she called his mother. He said, "Don't call me. Call 911." So when they found him, he'd been down for a long time. They estimated it could have been as long as 45 minutes. And they found him blue, pulseless, unresponsive, cooling off. He looked bad. And when they put the monitor on him, remarkably, he did still have weak ventricular fibrillation going on. And uh, after doing CPR, giving him drugs and shocking him several times, remarkably, they got a rhythm back. So they were still uh, uh, ventilating him. They were talking to the ER doc on the radio and had him direct admitted to cardiologist. So I wasn't really officially on the case, but I knew him and uh, I took over and got him set up in his ICU bed, adjusted his vent settings and his IVs and all that stuff, and got him set before the cardiologist got there. And when I was done with that, I did a neurological exam because you know the brain doesn't do well without enough oxygen for four or five minutes and this may have been much longer than that and you know what I couldn't find any uh, physical evidence that his brain was functioning he didn't have any of the normal reflexes or anything and uh, you know he looked like he was clinically brain dead you can't make that diagnosis that quickly but he did <coughs> The uh, cardiologist was taking care of him, and after a couple of days, he called in the neurologist who uh, did a careful neurological exam and said he is clinically brain dead. And as we did in those days, uh, she ran an EEG, which was completely flat, no activity whatsoever, and the plan was the next day to repeat another, and if it was also flat, we'd call it, you know? So, I was going out and talking to this family every day, and this man had a sweet wife who was uh, somewhat mentally challenged and uh, I don't think was really able to take care of herself and the children very well by herself. Uh, the real brains of the family was the patient's mother, who was about the age I am now, and she was a patient of mine. I knew she had a lot of chronic illnesses and probably not a very long life expectancy. So I was afraid those kids were going to end up without anybody to take care of them. Just really, really tore me up. 
Uh, when I came out and told them about the first EEG being flat and what the plan was, that tomorrow, if it's the same, he's going to be gone. The grandmother said, hey, could you take his kids in to see him one last time? He had two beautiful little sons, about ages five and three, little blue-eyed blonde kids. Uh, and she felt like if they could see him, the way he was uh, uh, in that bed inert with all those cubes on him and everything, that maybe they could understand and accept remembering that, that he was just too bad off to be able to come home. He had to go to heaven. And I agreed, and that was a, uh, strictly against the rules of the hospital, so I took him around the back entrance that I used and up the stairs and right across over to his bed before the nurses could say anything and let him see him. And they stood there quietly looking at him, and I took him out. And, oh, that just tore me up. I had to go on through the rest of my day doing all my work and all my rounds that night. And when I finally got home, it was about midnight, and I climbed in bed beside my sleeping wife, and I just could not uh, let that thought go about uh, the situation those kids were in and all. It just really cut me to the heart. And I did something that I hadn't done in years. I prayed. And I said, God, I don't know if you're even there to hear me, but if you are, I'd like to ask you for something. Not for me, but if you could do something for that man for the sake of his kids, I sure would thank you. And I said, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And you know what? This amazing feeling of warmth and peace just filled me. And I went right to sleep, slept like a baby, woke up the next morning, and I said, something very unusual and very important happened to me last night. I wonder what this day will bring. So I got up and I went straight to the hospital, straight up the back stairs and over to this man who's lying there on the ventilator and all. And like I say, we all knew he was brain dead. We were just doing the final formal confirmation. The EEG tech was there uh, putting the electrodes on his head. And uh, I stood there looking at him. I'll call him Mr. Johnson. I said, poor Mr. Johnson. That instant, his eyes opened, looking straight into mine. And I tell you what, it felt like lightning just went right down from my head to my toes. You know, in that moment, I knew that God is real. God is powerful. God was listening to me. God can still do miracles. You know, the EEG tech dropped everything she had, went running out of the room yelling for the nurses to come, which they all came on the double, as did the, uh, uh, the cardiologist and the neurologist shortly. And they weren't Christian believers, but they both stood there and they said, this is a miracle. I can't explain it any other way. And I just smiled and said, yes, it is. The man was looking at me. Uh, he was clearly alert as soon as he opened his eyes. 
and his mouth was moving. He was trying to ask me, what's going on here with that tube down in his throat? And I was just telling him, look, you're okay. You're getting, you're going to be all right, you know, just, just calm down. It's okay. Well, within an hour, they had the tube out, and in another day or two, they let him go home because he's doing okay. And I didn't see him anymore for a while. But about uh, three months later in the summer, uh, I ran into the cardiologist at the hospital, and he said, you remember that fellow, don't you? I said, oh, yes, I do. And uh, anyway, he said, he's had some congestive heart failure, and I put him back in the hospital, and I think he's just given up. I, I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. And I said, well, I'll talk to him. And I still had to go on through the rest of my day. And by the time I got back, it was up towards midnight. And I came in and woke him up. Hey. He said, hey, Doc. Uh, I said, how are you doing? And he said, Doc, it's so hard. I can't stand it anymore. I wish I could just go on and die and be done with it. I said, well, you know, about three months ago, you actually did die. And God brought you back. And you're here uh, because he wants you to be. And if you're here, he's got a plan for you. He's got something you want, he wants you to do. And if I were you, I'd try to find out what that is. And I walked out and went home. And uh, the next day, the cardiologist said, this fellow has just really turned the corner. I let him go home today. I don't know what you said to him, but it must have made a difference. So I didn't see him again uh, for about a year. Just before I moved up here, one of my last times I was going to the hospital, I was writing a note in the ICU, and I heard a voice, Hey, Doc, how you doing? And I looked up, and there was this man dressed up in his nicest clothes. I said, What are you doing here? And he said, Well, I've got a buddy in here. I'm going to uh, encourage and cheer up. So I believe he did find out. Uh, something about what God wanted him to do. And I haven't seen him since, but I will one day, and I'm going to rejoice it. Anyway, on with our story. We're continuing with the story about how the, uh, the uh, church began in the book of Acts. And uh, last week, in chapter 7, we read the story about how Stephen was stoned after uh, he testified to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> And we were introduced to a man named Saul, a young man at whose feet the, uh, the, uh, I guess it wouldn't be, I guess it probably is proper to call them stoners, isn't it? And anyway, in very literal sense, uh, Saul had his, uh, all their cloaks at his feet. He was obviously a man of authority uh, and may have been the leader of that mob. But I wonder, since it doesn't mention him throwing stones, if maybe he didn't hear Stephen with his own ears because the law said that whenever they uh, uh, put someone to death, that those who had witnessed the crime were the ones to throw the stones first. Anyway, in the first verse of Acts 8, we see him again. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And he's going to be my focus today. You know, his encounter with Jesus produced the most amazing transformation in him. And he went on to change his name from Saul to Paul. Uh, he was the apostle of the Gentiles, and he wrote the bulk of the New Testament. 
On the day that Stephen was stoned, a terrible persecution broke out against the believers in, in Jerusalem. And uh, Saul was in the thick of it. He was going from house to house, uh, dragging out any who believed in Jesus and uh, dragging them off to be arrested. All of the believers, except for the apostles, were, were scattered throughout Samaria and Syria, which were foreign places where the Jewish authorities could uh, chase them. And this was just a terrible calamity uh, for the believers in Jerusalem. You know, for some time, they had been living in relative peace, and uh, it tells us that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. But now they had to abruptly leave everything and flee for their lives out of Jerusalem. And Saul was the leader of this deadly persecution, and he was just determined. He had to destroy the church, and he was willing to do anything to make it happen. Jesus had warned his disciples that this was going to happen. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That's exactly where Saul was. He was convinced that eradicating the followers of Jesus was necessary to preserve the purity of the Jewish religion, and he was determined to do whatever it took to do that, and he believed he was serving God. But God used the dispersion of the church to spread the gospel. As Jesus had told uh, the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So until this time, the church community had remained in Jerusalem. And of course, they were witnessing to those around them by their, their life and their testimony. But... Now they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and, and Syria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the persecutors who wanted to wipe out the church instead caused it to rapidly spread and grow. And we're told how Philip went to Samaria proclaiming the Messiah. And many people there received the gospel with joy and were baptized. There was a fellow in Samaria named Simon, who thought he was something great, and he did magic tricks to get all the people to believe he had these divine powers. They called him the great power of God. But Luke tells us that he believed and was baptized. Then the uh, apostles in Jerusalem heard about what was going on and sent Peter and John up to check it out, see what's going on. They got up there and found that these uh, new converts who had been baptized didn't seem to have the Holy Spirit. So they prayed for them and put their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Simon was amazed at that. And he tried to give them money. Give me this gift so that I can lay hands on people and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter harshly rebuked him, said, May your money perish with you because you believed that you could buy the gift of God with money. And Simon said, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said uh, will happen to me. Well, you know, what do you think about this? That's an interesting uh, uh, story. Simon had become famous with his magic. And uh, uh, do you think that he thought that the apostles thought 
statement was that he thought that the apostles had a better set of tricks than he did, and if he could just learn that, he could be even greater and make a lot off it. Uh, he did try to give Peter and John money, uh, so they'd give him this gift. So was he a hypocrite, taking the name of the Lord in vain? Or is it more complicated? You know, in, in verse 8, 13, Luke says that he himself believed and was baptized. Luke usually investigated things carefully and just told us the straight stuff, just the facts, man. You know, someone can pretend to believe, uh, insincerely repent and confess, and go through the motions of being baptized so that people will recognize them as being Christians. And some use that false identification as a person of God for their own benefit. I think that's the main thing that using the Lord's name in vain means. Now, it says in Exodus 27, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Someone who pretends to be a believer will not be saved. But, Luke says that Simon believed and was baptized. So maybe, just maybe, Simon really recognized that what Philip was preaching and showing, and uh, uh, that was the real deal, and he truly believed. But then when he saw this great miracle of giving the Holy Spirit, you know, he said, wow, that's cool. I want to be able to do that too. And I'll bet you every trick that he knew, he'd had to pay somebody uh, to teach him. And so he was kind of reverting to his old ways. He was a brand new Christian. If he was a, a, a believer. And he did show contrition when uh, Peter chastised him. You know, maybe he was thinking, oh, oh man, I've really screwed up. Uh, you know, please pray that won't happen to me. So I don't know. It's a big temptation for us to judge others quickly and harshly while, of course, we've got reasons for everything we do. Uh, and we've got to remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, 37, 38. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I hope Simon's life was, was changed by his belief in the gospel. We don't hear any more about him. I hope that some more knowledgeable, mature followers of the way pulled him aside and, and uh, got him straightened out. He was certainly a very intelligent, capable man, a good public speaker. And, you know, I just like to think that maybe he went on to be a preacher of the gospel. It wouldn't be any more amazing than what happened to Saul. Peter and John preached further about Jesus as they returned through Samaria to uh, Jerusalem, and many Samaritans uh, came to believe. But Philip was sent by an angel of the Lord to go down to the road through the desert from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he ran into a chariot that had a, a eunuch from Ethiopia riding in it. He was a, a, a believer in God who had come to worship at the temple. And as he rode in his chariot, he was reading from Isaiah 53, a very 
familiar passage to us. And uh, Philip came up to him and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Come on up here. So Philip got in with him and starting from that very verse, he went through the scriptures and proved that Jesus was the Messiah. And the eunuch accepted the gospel and said, look, here's some water. Why don't you baptize me? And he did. And we're told that the eunuch got up out of the water and went on his way rejoicing, but an angel uh, zipped uh, Philip off up to some towns along the coast where he uh, witnessed to Gentiles. Now, the eunuch was taking the gospel back to Ethiopia where he was a, a great influence. He was probably the chief servant of the Kandake, the queen of uh, the Ethiopians. That was the beginning of the Coptic branch of Christianity that's still there today. And uh, uh, now, uh, you know, we had the gospel spreading all over. Is the uh, uh, disciples scattered, escaping the persecution and making new disciples? We got to remember that not only was the church growing as a whole, but every individual who heard the gospel and accepted it was being transformed by their faith. As Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So now the church included Jews, Samaritans, formerly pagan Gentiles from all around the area, and the Ethiopian eunuch was taking it to uh, Ethiopia. Speaking of Paul, back to his earlier life in Saul in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He was still a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he later described himself. He was outraged that followers of Jesus proclaimed him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, co-equal with God. To them, that was blasphemy. And blasphemy was the most serious crime you could commit under the, the Jewish law. So, they prescribed death by stoning for it. And that's what the Sanhedrin members had done to Stephen. You know, they had no authority to put anyone to death or anything, but they were so enraged by hearing Stephen saying, Look, I see heaven open and Jesus at the right hand of the Father. They all just started yelling and covered their ears and ran and dragged him out and stoned him with, with Saul there approving of it. You know, we don't uh, hear about Saul throwing any stones, I wonder if maybe he didn't hear that personally uh, because the law said that the witnesses were the first ones that were supposed to throw stones. But he was there approving of it. So he was still threatening the disciples with death and he went to the high priest to get these letters to take to the synagogues in Damascus so that he could take back any believers he found in chains and the uh, uh, high priest and his people could deal with him. He believed he was on a mission from God and he was determined he was going to accomplish it. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he said. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. What a stunning experience that was. And can you just imagine what kind of, of thoughts and what fervent prayers he must have had during those three days when he was blind there in Damascus waiting to see what would happen. And Saul wasn't the only one who would have a dramatic encounter with Jesus. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go into the house of Judas. Uh, that was a very common name. Uh, uh, you know, this is not Judas who betrayed Jesus. On Straight Street, not State Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was just about as much of a shock to Ananias, I imagine, as Jesus was to Saul on the road. And I don't think his response was anything disrespectful or disobedient. You know, I think in the same position we might have said the same thing, you know. Lord... Are you really sure you want me to go do this? You know what this man's been doing, right? And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus made sure that he really did know that he'd chosen Saul to be his messenger. He expected him to work to spread the gospel as zealously at least as he had been to try to wipe it out and that he was going to have to accept and willingly bear the... Uh, the trouble and suffering that the obedience would bring on him. Then Ananias went into the house and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Ananias did exactly what Jesus told him, and he called him Brother Saul. He accepted it. Can you imagine how startling it was to see how he got his sight back, something like scales falling out of his eyes? You know, I kind of have a, a vision of something like opaque contact lenses or something, but whatever it looked like, he got his sight back at once. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. 
All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who spread havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And unsurprisingly, the Jewish leaders whose beliefs, uh, teachings, practices, and authority he was challenging uh, with his message, they decided to kill him. Paul got tipped off. They were going to try to hide outside the city gates and grab him and murder him out of sight of the crowds in the city. But uh, 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 some of the followers put him out through a hole in the wall and let him down in a basket. That took some real faith, I think, on Saul's part to get in that basket. But that's what they did, and Saul went to Jerusalem. There, there were disciples who were afraid of him and wouldn't believe he really was uh, a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, we met near the end of chapter 4, believed him and took him to the apostles and explained what had happened, and they accepted him. He stayed with them uh, for... Uh, a while and he was preaching boldly in Jerusalem debated with the Greek Jews and they decided too that they were going to kill him so other believers took him to Caesarea and put him on a boat to go up the Mediterranean coast and take him back to Tarsus his home city Saul's conversion and translation his transformation excuse me is totally amazing he went from being a devout follower and defender of the Pharisaic branch of the Jewish faith to was a fanatical enemy of uh, Jesus Christ and his followers to being one of the most devoted disciples that we see in the New Testament. He worked tirelessly, fearlessly, and effectively bringing the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, to their king, to the people of Israel, as Jesus had told Ananias that he would. He suffered much for proclaiming the name of Jesus, as was foretold. He planted many churches, brought countless people to Christ. He ordained other younger ministers, such as Titus and Timothy, who extended and carried on his work. And he remembered the people in the churches he had ministered to and prayed for them constantly. He wrote letters to them to encourage them and address them problems facing them and those letters comprise most of the New Testament we know today under the guidance of the Holy Spirit he, uh, he stated many vitally important principles of the Christian faith that guide us today I don't know of anyone whose life was transformed more by accepting Jesus Christ than Saul slash Paul was and you know Christ transforms everyone who comes to him in faith. It's not a one-time thing that just happens when you accept Christ. It's a lifelong growth process. And uh, it comes from loving Jesus, trusting him, wanting to be more like him, spending time in prayer and studying the word. And it's not something to do alone. We really need to be members of the church. We need to be supporting each other, studying together, uh, learning together, praying for each other, loving each other, serving Christ, and serving others, and being willing to share our faith with them. And you know what? Uh, 
Jesus, he still changes lives. And uh, God has something planned for you, uh, whether you're a Christian now or not. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 